Over the past few weeks, we looked at some of the obstacles or uh, some of the reasons people oppose the Christian faith. We talked about the problem of uh, the problem of pain and why that's such a such a push. Uh, people, uh, it, it hurts so badly. It's how could pain and the and a good God exist at the same time? And so we we wrestled with that question. And then the following week, we we wrestled with the idea of um, whether or not Jesus existed or who he says he is. And we realized that there are historical documents outside of the Bible that prove that this man Jesus lived. Then last week, we took a lot of time and I kind of belabored the point that we can trust the scriptures that we have today because of the way that it's been preserved over time and the way that everything's, the manuscripts are brought together. And even though maybe we don't have, because even though we don't have the original writings, we've got the manuscripts, but the, but kind of the the mural that the manuscripts create gives us a full and accurate picture of the Bible that we have today. And we can be confident that we have what the early church had. And so we're left with one major question. The most important question ever asked, who is Jesus? And so uh, when I think about one question, uh, there's this old movie, City Slickers, from the 90s, so college students, pay attention, this is a piece of history. I mean, Billy Crystal's like 30 years old. I'm just saying. Uh, How old are you? 38. 39. Yeah. You all come up here about the same age, same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing, just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean... Nothing. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you got to figure out. (laughs) I helped him out. (laughs) That one thing. One thing. One question. He's like, you got to figure it out for yourself. And the reality for this question that we're about to look at today is the one question that you absolutely positively have to answer for yourself. Your parents can't ask it for you. Your culture can't answer it for you. Your church can't answer it for you. A pastor, a spouse, a friend, a relative. Nobody can, can answer this question on your behalf. So we're going to look at the book of Matthew. And we're going to look at what this question is. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Jesus is walking with his disciples. And Jesus came to this place and he asks this, he asks this question. He's trying, Jesus asks questions throughout the gospel. And you see him regularly ask these questions. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to gauge people's understanding of who he is. He's like, what do you see when you look at me? He's not insecure. He's not asking so that he can be more confident in himself. He's just trying to see, are they catching on? Do they understand who I am? How much do they understand who I am? There's no identity crisis here, right? So uh, verse 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this question. I ask that you would help us consider this question today and answer this question with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at it very quickly. He starts at the large picture and he's asking his disciples, the people who know him best, the people that are walking with him. At this point, crowds have rushed to him. He's performed miracles. And Jesus is a name that's known. This rabbi, this guy who's doing radical things, is is building a name for himself. And people must be whispering, this guy is more powerful than anybody else. He teaches with great authority. Who is this man? And, And they're wrestling with it. And so he asks his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And they answer by, by talking about what surely is the rumor that he's either a prophet that's been reborn or a prophet that's come down from heaven. He's doing things that no, nobody had ever done and nobody else had done in, in a long, long time, but he was doing it with more authority than anybody else had ever done. It had been about 400 years since Malachi, the last prophet who spoke, to the, who spoke to the Israelites. And so it's been a long gap of time. And now this guy shows up on the scene and he's remarkable. So who is he? They had no context, so they had to go with what they had already heard about. And then he brings it down to them. Okay, well, that's great. That's what everybody else says. I hear you saying that's what everybody else says. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, and I love Peter because he, he just, he's so eager and sometimes he gets it right, and sometimes he gets it very wrong. And sometimes he's remarkable, and sometimes he's not so remarkable. And so with, with, I, I picture him being very eager in this moment and just being like, I got this! You are the Christ! You're the Messiah that was promised. You're the Son of the living God. And to call him the Son of the living God was akin to calling him God. And, and to, to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish, context, uh, to the Jewish hearer at that time, it would be the same as saying, you are the same as, you're the same substance as God himself. So to the hearers, to the audience, to the people he was speaking to, it was a declaration of the godness of Jesus. Godness might not be a word, but it worked. When Jesus asks this question to Peter, the reality is it's the same question that resonates throughout all of history for you and me. And if you've heard a message like this hundreds of times, don't dull your ears of this because we need to be reminded freshly on the daily and weekly basis about who Jesus is and and the significance of that question. The reality is that there are only two options. Option one is that he is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. He is not the one who will save the world from its sins. If that's the case, he's just a man who lived in history, drew a crowd, and misled generations of people. And so every, everybody who would call him a prophet or everybody who would call him a good teacher is, is unengaged with the great harm that the ministry of Jesus cost. What great teacher or great prophet would claim to be God? 
What prophet or great teacher would claim to raise from the dead if he didn't raise from the dead? What teacher or great prophet would dare tell people to follow him into a lie? But if looking at the scriptures that we know we can trust, if examining the life of this man Jesus who history attests to and, and uh, in, in archaeology attests to, if, if, if we look at these things and, and, and he was lying, who is he? But just the most dangerous glip that's ever existed. Blip on the radar of time. The other option is that he is who he says he is. The other option is that he is the savior of the world. The other option is that he is the one who was from the very beginning, from outside of time, who created everything, who he himself is light, who he himself is God, who he himself, you know, it's, it's, he is all of these things that he promised himself to be. And if he's all of these things that he promised him, himself to be, then he is the one in whom we live and, and move and have our being. He is the one who gives us purpose. He is the one who gives us strength. He is the one that just didn't put us on the planet and say, well, good luck. But he's a passionate desire for us to know him and to walk with him and to be restored with the Father. That's why he came after all. So we've got two options. He either is or is not the Savior of the world. He either is or is not the one who gives you purpose and meaning. I want to talk about how we, how we find the answer and remind ourselves to the answer to this great question. Because I think there's a temptation when you've grown up in church. Now, I want to, I want to speak to you who have grown up in church for, for a moment because we make a lot of assumptions about Scripture. We, we make assumptions about, about what scriptures mean because we've been preached to it before, because we read it in a study Bible or we read a book about it. And so we already know the answer and we, we don't remember what it feels like to not know the answer. And so we take scripture for granted. You know, like, so on Good Friday, we, we sing songs and we celebrate and we create a sad environment or a somber or a reflective environment. But then on Saturday, we're good to go because we know, we know Sunday's coming. Right? But to the disciples, it was the most devastating day on the history in, in, their, in their life. Their, their Messiah, their Deliverer, their Victor, their Savior had died. We don't experience the emotion of that day because we know He rose from the dead. So here, I, I, wanna, I, I guess I want to illustrate this. So, John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going through this exercise. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Um, my wife and I were talking about reading, reading a page of the Bible as if it was the only page of the Bible that you had. You know, and, and you can't preach a message that way because you might say something, you might come to a conclusion that's incorrect, right? But you can certainly use it to stir your, to stir your faith and to remind you of the value of this document. The value of these words, where we approach the heart and the mind of God. And so, John chapter 1, this is just, I'm just going to read from my own, my own journal, all misspellings and stuff. In John chapter 1, 
it opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Who remembers that? Have you heard that quoted? Raise your hand real tall. And the Word is... It's true. I, 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 I did that badly. Who's the Word? God. We don't know it's Jesus yet. We don't know it's Jesus yet, but we, but we read it because we've heard it a hundred times and because, we, because we've heard it talked about in church or we've seen a quote on Facebook or something else. We know that Jesus is the Word. We call Him the Word, the living Word, right? We sing songs about, you are the living Word. So we're like, oh, oh, that's it. You're the living Word. And it's a Fred Hammond song. It's good. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right now, all we know, if this, is, if this is all we have, is that in the very beginning, before anything else existed, there was the Word. And it was God. That's it. And so if we look at this as disciples, if we look at this as hungry people who want to know Jesus, who are willing to search the Scriptures, if we, if we look at this as, as a source of revelation and truth that's been preserved throughout time, something that we can trust, something that we can follow, something we can, we can put a flag down and we can say, this is where I'm going to find the truth about who Jesus is. All we know is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And so let's go a little bit fur- further. In verses 2 through 5, I'll read it for you. It says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So there's a kind of a separation. So he was God, but he was also with God. Which starts to point to this kind of Trinity idea. That isn't even going to be fully developed in, in John chapter 1. All things were made through him, and without him was not, and nothing was made that was, without him, nothing was made that is made. And so, uh, I'll read a little further. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He comes as a witness, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So what have we learned now? We learned that this word, God that's existed forever and has been with God forever, he created everything. This word, this God, is also the light of men. I, I'm really excited about this. Because we still don't know who the light is. We know that it's God, but we don't know that it's Jesus yet, even though when we grew up in church, we just, we've already assigned the name of Jesus to this. But if we're hungry and searching and studying, we don't know it's Jesus yet. So he's the light that shines in the darkness. He's the source of light. He is the conqueror of the dark. We also know that God loves us enough from this that he sent a messenger to tell us that the light was coming, to tell us that the word was coming, to tell us that he sent a messenger ahead to let everybody know, hey, pay attention, something's about to go down. So this God wants to be known. This God we read about in the book of John. We learn that God's messenger, his name was John. And he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So let's go a little further. The true light, which enlightens everyone, I'm in verse 9, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, uh, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
So now he's kind of, he, he's, he's jumped out of this. And now he's looking back and he's saying, hey, uh, just so you know, uh, this is how this went down. John came, he said it was coming. The light came and he was rejected. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, but of the, uh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's this spiritual birth that's available for those who believe in God, who believe in the word, who believe in this light, who believe in this creator. We still haven't assigned the name of Jesus to it yet. Isn't this cool? I, I mean, I, like when I do this exercise, I'm like, man, I make so many assumptions. Let's keep going. And then we'll get, we'll get back to the, the outline. But I think the outline is far less important. Because if you, leave, if you leave this week more excited about the word, that's good enough for me. So uh, we're up at uh, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the only son from the father. There's another title. So this God, this light, this word, this hope, this creator came and lived among us in flesh. See, we're getting close to Jesus now. We're like, so, but we're thinking about it freshly. So we don't, you don't even know about Jesus. Right? You're just reading this text. You're reading this historical document that's been preserved throughout all of history. And we know that the believers, the guy who wrote this and the people who followed it changed the world forever. And they were moved by this God who took on flesh and lived among them. What do we learn about God in this question? We learn that God desired to come down and be among his people. You know, have you ever seen that, 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 that show Undercover Boss? I don't even know it's, if it's on anymore. It's like the ultimate undercover boss. The creator of the universe came down to live among the people in the flesh and experience life like one of the people. He's like, I'm not just going to come down as the boss, but I'm going to put on the uniform... I'm going to put on the flesh and I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to walk around you and we're going to, I'm going to experience everything that you've experienced only completely different than you experienced it. Okay, so let's keep going. So, um, so the word came down, took flesh and it says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. What's remarkable about this glory? Now remember, so this is a guy who's writing. He saw the glory. We've seen his glory, but he was in flesh. How did they see his glory? We don't know. As the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I'm full of a lot of stuff. <laughs> I wish it was said about me that I was full of grace and truth. But I got an ornery streak. <laughs> I got a mean streak. I got a goofy streak. If you were to describe me as full of something, it wouldn't be grace and truth. So it set this God it set this light. It set this creator. It set this, uh, it set this, what other names do we have? Um, the feeder of darkness. Apart from everything else that had lived, even though he was in the flesh. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is who I said. So John, the guy who came before the light, well, he didn't, came before on earth before the light. This is who I was talking about. This guy full of grace and truth, this is him. 
I told you that he was going to come. I told you he was coming on the scene. And, and this is him. This is him. This is the one that, that I was telling you about. This is the one that God told me. This is the one that God wants you to know. Amen. This is the one that's going to deliver the world from their sins. This is the one who I said ranks before me because he was before me. So just as, an, just as a side note, for people that say, how could Jesus be God if he was born of a person? Well, God always existed. Jesus always existed. He took on flesh for the time. And so, the, and, 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 and even the words in the, in the Greek support that idea. It's not even like we're playing with words. It's, it's what the language that was used to describe the birth of Jesus supports and points to. And from the fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. This light, this creator, this person full of grace and truth just supplied us with grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and, tr- grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We finally see it. We finally see it. But just in case Jesus Christ is another character, Right? Because we're not sure yet if, if Jesus Christ is the light, maybe. We're not sure if he was the creator. We're not sure if he's the one who started everything. We're not, we're not quite certain yet at this point. So I'm just going to, I want to fast forward to this moment where John reveals it to us in fullness. In John chapter 1, verse 29. He spends verses 19 through 28 talking about the evidence that he's not. The light. He's just saying, I'm just here to talk about the one who is. It's not me. And he spends quite a bit of energy doing that. And then in verse 29, he says, The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, there's another title, who takes away the sin of the world. Boom. This is he of whom I said, After me, who comes a rank, who, who ranks before me, because he was before me. I, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel, to all of you. And Job bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. There it is. There's Jesus. We grow up so used to the Bible that we let our Bibles collect dust. But it is the greatest source of truth that's ever been known to man. He is the way, the truth. And as we know him, we know the creator. As we know him, we know God himself. So we've got to search the scriptures, not casually, not passively, not with distrust, not with disinterest, not with commonality, but passionately. We need to search the Bible. We need to search scripture seeking after truth. We need to search through scripture pursuing the heart and the mind of God. God, what is it that you want to teach me in here? We need to approach the word of God prayerfully. God, teach me who you are. Teach me what your purpose is. 
Teach me who I am. You know, we'll never, we'll never understand who we are until we understand who he is. And that's the point of that song. I, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who I am. It switches to who I am. Because, it, because when we understand who our father is, we realize who we are. We're, we're children of God. Whoever believes in him, it says in, in John 1, has the right to become children of, children of God, a child of God. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I I don't need to be known as a pastor. I don't want to be known as, I don't even need to be known as a, as, as a husband or a father or anything else because any of those titles mean nothing if I'm not a son of God. I don't know what accolade you're pursuing or what accolade you've been given. I don't care what title you've been giving without an identity in God. Those mean very little. It's a good meal by yourself. So we need to search the scriptures. We need to ask questions of the scripture. What kind of questions should we ask? What did I learn about God? What have I learned about man? How can I respond to what I've learned? When I, when I did this exercise the last two weeks in the book of John, I've been so stirred. You all, I, didn't, I actually was it's so excited I didn't even get to that question, how do I need to respond? Because what it provoked in me was just an excitement that produced worship and prayer. I was like, I just want to talk to you, Jesus. I just want to talk to you. Teach me more. I just want to worship. I want to understand more. And it just it fed this desire to read more, to study more, to search more. Like, I want, to, I want to know you. We need to read the Bible with eyes that say, teach me. We should pursue this text more passionately and more eagerly and with more questions than any other text that we approach. You know, it's the NBA Finals and, and you know, they obsess over every detail. <laughs> Curry's ankle and, you know, all these different things. You know, it, we obsess over the details. We obsess over the details of the NFL draft. We obsess over the details of, of how to do this. Or Pinterest is a, obsesses over everything that is and ever has been cute. Right? We obsess about, about the stance of political figures. We obsess about the, the stance of this person or that person or this movie or that movie. We, we, you know, before you go see a movie, we read the reviews. We read the critic reviews. We, we do all of this. What about the critic reviews of God's plan and purpose? We, we, we're going to find the answer to who God is in here. And then we have the opportunity to respond. So we ask questions. And then we need to answer the question. The question that was posed to Peter and to the disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? Some of us in the room never needed the discussion about pain because you accept that God is good. 
Some of us in the room didn't need a conversation about science because you accept that God is sovereign over science. Some of you didn't need a discussion or a sermon about how we can trust the translations of the Bible and how we know that we've got manuscripts. But some of us did. Some of us came to the table with lots of questions. Many of us still have questions. It's my hope that you would have enough information at this time to make that decision. To answer with one of the two options, yeah, you're the one who takes away the sin of the world. I guess within that there are options. It's you're the one that takes away the sin of the world, but I don't want to follow you. Which would be the most tragic place you could be. Or you are the one that takes away the sin of the world and I want you to take away my sin and I do want to follow you. You know, it doesn't mean that you have all your questions answered. It doesn't mean that you've settled in your heart and mind about evolution or is creation six days, actual days, or is it periods. You don't, like, we don't actually need the answers to those questions to answer the question about who Jesus is. And and I'm not speaking from a place of just a believer in Jesus. I'm speaking from the place of somebody who's talked to a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus, who concede to that same point. That really, at the end of the day, the most important question is, who is Jesus? There was a lot I I didn't know about my wife when we got married. We'd been friends for a long time, but there's a lot I didn't know. This is why people try not to get married nowadays. We're scared of the unknown. You know, when we say yes, you know, we didn't live together before we got married. We didn't sleep together before we got married. And, and so there were all sorts of questions. She got a nasty morning breath. And then there were more important questions. What, what, is, her, what is her money going to be like? How is she going to do these things? How is she, what if she changes? And I know that we bring the same uncertainty into our relationship with God. But in the end, I decided, you know what? It's worth being with her to, to overcome some questions and to, over, to confront some challenges. And, and to, to be with her and to have her as mine is worth whatever's on the other side of this yes. And so it is with Jesus, we, we get scared because if we admit that he is the living God, if we admit that he is the truth, if we admit that he is the one, the way that takes away the sin of the world and takes away even our sin, how will he treat me after I make this decision? Can I trust him with my life or is he going to make me do crazy things? Is he going to make me one of those Christians? <laughs> Probably. I haven't met a cool Christian yet. I just want, <laughs> because there's a place where, where we, we define cool as being like fitting in and, and like being like this. But when you start talking about the name of Jesus, when you start talking about needing a savior, when you start talking about not having enough on your own, you've officially departed cool. Because the, pool, cool, the cool person doesn't need anything. The cool person just needs themselves. That's what makes them cool. Oh, they don't need me. They're cool. They don't need anybody. They don't even need money or or anything. It's just, they got everything. So to say, no, I'm, I'm jacked up. I'm a victim too of sin. I'm screwed up just like everybody else. That's a, that's the, 
the great secret, isn't it? We're all messed up. Just some of us have found our answer to us being messed up in Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? And we're going to answer that question in just a second. But once you answer that question for yourself, this last step of invite someone else becomes so critical. I, I don't, I mean, I understand, but I don't understand. There was a guy at Starbucks last night that I wanted to talk to, but I didn't want to talk to him. Because I didn't want to put myself out of the way. I didn't want to make things awkward. And I'm kicking myself this morning. I'm like, man, I should have talked to him. Like, what kept me from talking to him? Is he going to like reject me? Is he going to turn me away? I have life. I have the answer to life. I have the, I have Jesus. Why would I ever pull my punch from sharing it with someone? I, we, I'm, I, I say that to say we all do. And so when I talk about inviting people along, I know it's scary. And, and fear overtakes me sometimes. But I promise you, if I see this guy again, I'm going to go up and I'm going to talk to him. He's a man who has clear need. And I can approach him as another man who has clear need. We need to invite people into this life-changing, life-saving journey in Jesus Christ where we're saved in a moment and he works on us and we become like him in a lifetime.